What is up, the DER Task Force? We got a great show for you today, talking all things residential DERs. EVs, controllable refrigerators, batteries, smart thermostats, solar, and on and on. Lots of fun, crazy stuff coming your way. This is inspired by a presentation that Kieran Bhatraji made, CEO of Arcadia. If you haven't heard of Arcadia, you should check them out because they totally rule. And if you want to learn more about them after this podcast, you can go straight to the source and watch the recorded conversation with Kieran on our YouTube channel. We'd also like to note that we just released our first round of DER Task Force swag on our website. So if you want a dorky microgrids or dope sweater or a DER Task Force hat, check it out and please make a purchase as all proceeds go towards supporting the organization. Anyways, with that out of the way, enjoy the show. It's kind of the biggest scandal nobody is talking about that utilities were allowed to deploy AMI to 65% of the country and they still don't settle to the meter outside of ERCOT. For some insane reason, PJM allows individual utilities to set their own metering protocols, which means that without top-down mandates, lobbying has to happen on a per-utility basis. Duke and First are making progress here, but it needs to come from the top and ideally FERC. This one simple legislative action can unlock billions in carbon value and grid efficiency. Imagine the opportunities for nationwide time of use if we had the markets for it. This was actually Abe Stanway and responded to your tweet, Duncan. So you should tweet less because you don't even remember who you talked to on Twitter. (laughs) When you tweet 35 times a day or more, you tweeted at me and Michael Lee, where are Resi accounts? with smart meters settled dynamically other than Texas. And then Abe jumped in. Just dropping it's knowledge. very informative. It's tr- yeah, I, I would even be harsher. Like it, it, it is, it's a scandal. It's a fucking scandal. We need to talk about it more. That is really nuts. So it's just ERCOT, is that what he said? Pretty much, that's the only market. I just checked in PJM, like our regulatory team asked PSC&G, like, hey, this is what we wanna do, there's a, sewn in battery in these houses we want to be the rep for them and do all sorts of cool time of use stuff and they're like yeah we don't settle to the meter so no that's just for residential yeah you know as you know cni settles to the meter even large cni in new york you have to be pretty big to be able to do it but in a lot of these states where we've spent the money ratepayers paid the money to install smart meters We're not using them, basically. Should we explain Mm -hmm. what settling to the meter is? Because most people probably don't know. Every time I talk to, doesn't matter how big of an energy nerd they are, I'd say most people don't know this concept. I didn't know this concept until you told me about it, so. Wow, see, there you go. Let's go back to when there was no smart meters, right? So a person from Con Ed, Colleen, or whatever utility, would walk out to someone's house or building and physically read the analog meter, right? So it was like a clock that would wind around and you'd go out once a month and you'd say, okay, this is how many kilowatt hours were were used the past month. You weren't going out every day or every hour, right? So you'd all you'd have is one number at the end of the month. Like this is how many, how much energy they used. At the same time on the wholesale market side of things, so generators bidding into the ISOs, that was settling on 15 minute intervals or an hour, right? So the utilities for each customer, their rate class or their tariff structure, they would give the third-party suppliers or their own internal team, whatever they're doing, a load curve and say, this is what the curve looks like for this home and this is how much they used on that curve. So basically in the absence of knowing what residential customers were actually doing on an hourly basis, they created sort of an average customer so that they could better forecast what the load would be on a given day and sort of tie that to the supply price? I guess some customers are on different load shapes, like commercial customers are different. You're assuming it's nine to five. So a bunch of utilities still actually buy power on behalf of their customers. You know, they're the supplier as well. Or if there were a third party ESCO or rep, they had to let the rep know when they actually bought that energy. So they kind of just averaged it. Yes, so if you're a third party supplier, a rep, ESCO, um, we need to pick one name for that thing, by the way. Let's go with rep. I like rep. I like rep too. Um, so if you're a rep and you're serving a customer who is not on a smart meter, it's the utility's job to inform you of you know, what your exposure to the market was. And 
that's when they use this average load curve or, or, or whatever, this load shape right. for that type of customer. And then what I then, as the rep, am, am exposed to what my load was, was that load shape, even though in reality, it could be anything. So that both means I'm only exposed to the average load for that customer class. And if my customer had some means of changing their load, it wouldn't matter because there's, it wouldn't affect the rep's exposure at all. Right. Because generators have to produce power at a certain time during the day. The physics of the grid are still the same. You still have to match supply and demand. And we could know generally like, oh, people come home at five and they start cooking or whatever it is. So we would come up with some average curve like that because whoever's buying power for that customer still is buying it theoretically at a certain time of day. But now they put the smart meters in and they have the data. So if I'm an ASCO, what this, sorry, rep. <laughs> for those who are lost at this point, rep is retail electricity provider. So it's the energy supplier. And smart meter is just, you know, converts it from analog to digital. And I, as a rep, can get that data. So if that customer has a battery and they turn it on at noon and lowers their load until two, say, when prices are high, the utility has just given me that curve. So their battery discharging actually doesn't affect the curve that I'm getting from the utility. So it's benefiting the grid, but there's no way to actually recover, you know, it's Monetize socialized it. across all, all resi customers in that class. So it doesn't settle to the meter, financially settle to the meter. Yeah. So basically without settling to the meter, reps have no incentive to shape load. Yeah, which didn't used to be a problem because there didn't really used to be a lot of load to shape with the exception of maybe some utility-led demand response for, for air conditioning. But as we've seen more deployment of DERs in the Resi space, whether that be EVs, smart thermostats, batteries, there's more volatility because people are changing their demand a lot more. And there's a need to be able to create a flexible market of some sort, whether that's settling to the meter or creating, you know, new incentives for customers to actually understand and have the incentive to change behavior in order to create a sort of better response mechanism. Right. So there's the early showings of a need, I'd say. In California, you see the duck curve. In other places, maybe prices get a little weird. Theoretically, I think everyone knows there's this big need for flexibility. And we just looked it up, Duncan. What is it? 38% of all electricity load is residential. Mm -hmm. A very small percentage of that is transportation. But now if everyone's buying EVs, they're going to come home and they're going to charge that. So Colleen, to your point, if this trend continues, we're actually adding more load at the residential level. As we're adding more solar and wind, the duck curve's getting worse. There's really this need to get residential customers to respond to price signals, to shift load around. I think there's a pretty widely accepted problem in the energy community, but maybe not enough in a weird way attention's being put to it. Yeah. And I think the attention isn't really being put because there's a lot of resi customers with very small loads, right? So you need scale and you need the ability to earn for that change in load, right? Which to your point, if you can't settle to the meter, you can't really earn to it very easily. Right. Mainly when I talk to people who are really do think a lot about residential and flexibility, they're like, oh, time of use rates. If utility is creating these curves, right, these demand curves, if you just structure it so that they pay more from like 4 p.m. to 8 p.m., say when the peak residential load is, then people will start shifting load to earlier in the day or something like that. To me, that's still not a very great solution because... It's like, we have the meter there. Why don't we just use the real data? Still seems like a blunt tool, if you will. Yeah, imagine if other things that are dynamically priced had time of use pricing. Like, what if Uber and Lyft had time of use pricing where you knew exactly what the price would be in the future <laughs> just by you know cho choosing when you're going to take a Lyft? Like, the strange outcome of time of use rates is if they're successful, then they're now not good anymore then we just have to shift the hours again. Like it, it becomes like this, this game of catch up kind of. So anyways, 
today we're talking about residential DERs, right? Because I think Duncan and I work in commercial, Colleen's in residential at Con Ed, but I feel like the conversation always gravitates towards commercial and industrial maybe because of Duncan and I's backgrounds, but we haven't really dug into the problems with what's going on at the resi level with DERs. So you see VCs tweeting Uber for electricity and, oh, we have <laughs> we have Nest and we have Tesla Powerwalls and EVs. There's so much software. This is great. And it's like, why isn't this happening? And the real answer is there's a lot of real barriers on the grid that don't allow it to happen. And, and that's really what we want to address today. So James, maybe before we go on, I've heard that you have a thesis that you believe there's one way which makes unlocking residential flexibility and residential DERs, you know, more possible than all the other ways people have talked about. You want to clue us in on that? So I think one of the things that we're working on at David Energy in the commercial industrial space is if you have a battery behind the meter and you're a retail electricity provider, what do you do with that? You know, we're, we're basically trying to price this flexibility into the commodity side of the bill. And for a few years, I've been down on this concept of energy as a service, which I'd say what for the last five, 10 years, maybe even the past decade, people have been talking a lot about, can you give a residential customer, if you control their smart thermostat and a battery and their EV, can you just have them pay the same exact amount every month? And it's sort of like the holy grail for the future of <laughs> electricity, right? Because everyone talks about it really aligns incentives around efficiency, around climate goals, because now the electricity provider wants their customer to use less. Whereas in the old world, the electricity provider would make more money the more power you consumed. So it's always been very interesting to me, theoretically or like academically, but I thought it was BS, to be honest. <laughs> I was like, this is never going to work because, you know, your teenage son will come home once you have a flat bill every month and just start like mining Bitcoin in his bedroom. And then your usage is going to go through the roof and it's free power. And then you have to like change your contract with the customer. So, or like more simple things like you build a pool in the backyard. Right. Now you have a pool pump and a heater mm -hmm. that you didn't have before. Right. So I guess the thesis would be that I'm actually long flat billing right now. Like I think it can really work. And I think someone should try it in earnest. And it would be really cool. Energy as a service, just like, you know, subscription models are in. Everyone loves Netflix. Pay me 150 bucks as the electricity provider, and then I'll take care of everything from there. So that that's the thesis. I'm going to argue that we're headed there over the next five years. And in the next decade, maybe everyone is doing that. So, mm. yeah, I, I actually, I do, while I do like the sort of concept around flat billing, I think my concerns tend to come from this idea of alignment of incentives. And so I think there's ways of right getting around someone building a pool or someone becoming a Bitcoin miner. I think it becomes really hard to know in a rep model, like when you have flat billing, what the customer is paying. And so for customers to know if they're getting a good deal or not. And I think that sort of like educational component is some of the places where I get a little bit confused around is the utility providing this or reps sort of competing on this? How do they, if you don't have a price per kilowatt hour, like what's kind of going into that? Is someone going to be really upset when their thermostat is like 90 degrees and they're like, oh, it was in the terms and conditions. Do customers care, Colleen? Do they really care if their bill is $120 a month or 150 Some customers care. Well, they care if last month it was 120 and this month it's 280 I think that's when they care on like a relative basis or I switch from this provider to that provider, but are they really like, oh, it's 150. It should be 123. I think no one understands their energy bill. Yes. Right. Like no one has some innate feeling of, oh, you know, this month I used more than I did last month, unless there's like some major seasonal change, mm -hmm. like people can intuit, oh, it's hotter. I used more AC. But other than that, I don't think anyone has any understanding of where their bill comes from. And like often I, you'll actually see like one month someone's bill is higher than the previous month, but maybe it's just driven by like rates and 
people they'll have thought they used less that month. I mean, I think from like in the efficiency world, that's definitely true, right? Customers will install something energy efficient. The next winter will be colder than the one before their bills go up. And it's sort of like, well, your bill went up by less than it would have gone up if you hadn't done this energy efficient thing. And that's really hard concept for people. So totally appreciate that. I guess I mean more in terms of the perspective of the fact that because consumers don't think a lot about their energy space in the resi side compared to the commercial side, opening them up to sort of a lot of different options that it can be difficult to compare can be like a bit of an overwhelming experience. And I'm not sure it always provides them a lot better in return. Isn't that retail choice though? You're like describing the current state. Exactly. There's an argument that residential retail choice is bad, that it's driven negative value to consumers. Oh, I don't buy that. Because it's confusing. Well, there, there are analyses that say this. Now, I, I don't understand them or claim to know much about this. But there's like a real group of energy wonks out there who say like residential retail choice just like doesn't get the job done. I overheard a couple moving to to Texas. They were sitting in a coffee shop in in Harlem and I was just listening to them try to figure out what electric rate they should go on and what retailer (laughs) they should choose. And I sat there and listened to them for an hour before I sort of started getting involved and like, cause they were really, you know, hemming and hawing over like what environmental credits, (laughs) like how like if they wanted to pay more to be like, good for the environment. And I was like, here's how recs work. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, well, so this, so you actually in- jumped in. Wait, I love that. I did. Yeah. I was like, I can't like these, poor, this poor couple has no idea what they're doing. <laughs> wow. So my view on James's point about energy as a service is while I'm confused about how it will work, what I think is exciting about it. Well, that's what we're here for, Duncan. We're going to explain that. <laughs> <laughs> What's exciting about it is it's what customers want. Like when you think about residential electricity users, they don't understand any of the numbers, where the rates come from, why they used more than they did last month. Like no one's like, I feel like I was turning the lights off more this month. Like no one knows, right? And they're ex- when they get one bill that's greater than the last bill within some margin of error, they assume there's an error, right? Like they expect it to be a flat bill and they have some like boundaries they're willing to sort of take. But like, I think this is what customers want. Whether or not it's achievable, I don't know. But like, yeah, what's exciting is like, it's exactly what people want. People don't want to have to think about this ever again. I agree with that. And I actually love, here's a good Arcadia plug. So talking to their team, their whole thing is like, residential customers think about energy for six minutes a year. (laughs) Like we have six minutes (laughs) to like sell them solar, like, uh, you know, on average, obviously there's customers out there who are different or switch them over to a different retailer. Like people just don't care. You know, they're like, give me a hundred, you know, I'll pay 120 bucks and then I won't think about it again. And then you get to, you know, implement smart thermostat or battery or, you know, can put all these value add services in there. The thing that's interesting on that note is I don't think flat billing is interesting without DERs. So that's like a strong caveat. Mm. You're not in it just for giving customers sort of like a a sense of security. You're in it because it's the best way to sort of align the proper market incentives. Right. Well, and without DERs, flat billing is just like, you just have to buy the hedge that makes that work. Like it's just more expensive over the long term. Right. So what actually gets interesting is if I have a smart thermostat and a battery in one house, and then I have... 100,000 of those houses, I can group them. And then that kind of flexible demand single device in a way now, aggregated across 100,000 homes, I can socialize their load in a way. And it makes sense to just give them one flat rate. And like some of them will win and some of them will lose in a sense, but they're all benefiting from everyone else. So without the ability to shape the load of one individual house and then spread that into a whole book of business, a whole sort of aggregated portfolio of homes, I don't get the point. Otherwise, it's just like (laughs) you're going back to like the utility is handing a load curve, you know, like there's nothing actually there. Like, why would you have a flat bill? Everyone should just pay what they're what they're using. Right. If you have a flat bill without DER is essentially you've eliminated any incentive for residential customers to change their behavior with the exception of maybe bringing down their overall bill by like $2 a month the next year, which is like not going to 
move the needle for anyone. Right. I think there there is the potential to create this kind of like powerful network in a way that the electricity provider is incentivized to be on the same team as the customer in doing that. So I think we should almost sidestep in a way right now, the conversation. And in order to talk about how it would work mechanically, why it's good, why it's bad, what are the other options, we should maybe just start from square one and look at, aside from settling to the meter, which we've now pointed out is probably the single biggest issue, you know, what are Resi DERs? What's what's available out there? You know, it's not just smart thermostats and batteries. What do the different markets look like? You know, just kind of what what where are we today, and how feasible is it to kind of get to this crazy Netflix like future? <laughs> so there's sort of like what I call the OG Resi DERs. OG Resi Der. OG OG, OG Resi Der. Yeah, I need a shirt with that. Which are the things you know that through like direct load control, there have been demand response programs, you know, for decades. And so that's your sort of central air conditioner thermostats, like not smart thermostats, just programmable thermostats and like pool pumps and areas with high pool penetration have, those have kind of existed for a long period of time of saying, we know we can move the needle on air conditioning and pool pumps. And those tend to be an issue when it's really hot out in the summer because people have their pools on and they have their AC on. Where it starts getting, I think, interesting as you move both into when your peak time is changing because you have increasing solar on the grid, which is another residue. When your peak is can start to change. And so that can start to change what other technologies you want to look at. So then, you know, smart thermostats came out great. They're like even more Wi-Fi enabled, more responsive. Batteries, we already mentioned. But now you're starting to have things, you know, like, water heater controllers, right? Kieran mentioned the company Aquanta, which is like optimizing load on electric and gas water heaters. You have, you know, air source heat pumps, ground source heat pumps, you have your EVs, all of which can both now become both summer and winter shaping systems as opposed to just summer shaping. Mm -hmm. And I think all of those are sort of combining and I don't know, Resi DERs, it's like, I mean, all DERs, I suppose, is interesting because once you start having them, you're not just trying to solve like the individual peak problem, right? You're trying to solve like how you optimize when peak occurs. Right. Let me ask the OG residers. <laughs> they they not, so they're OG not only in that it was a handful of things that sort of like were worth the squeeze when it was harder to do this, but also they were sort of following like an OG demand response paradigm where it's like a couple times a year we might exactly enable this on those you know terrible days on the grid is that is that right yeah totally i think that's a good point as to why this matters you know maybe we should have said this earlier but when you look at how the grid in the macro sense is evolving i always think of it as like the equation is flipping where in the past we had coal plants nuclear hydro natural gas peaker plants, whatever it is on the supply side of the equation, we had you know good amount of controls of ramping things up, ramping them down, and we had no visibility into the demand side. So someone would check on your house once a month to get your usage for the month. But it's not just when you talk about OG Resi DERs, there's this weird convergence of like 10 different things right now, <laughs> where on the demand side, one, you have smart meters. Two, like rooftop solar is taking off. Three, you have smart thermostats. Now you're talking about EVs, heat pumps, electrification, batteries, these much more controllable devices at the same time that like the software startup market's really mature where that wasn't true as well 10 years ago. In addition to like home automation becoming a thing and like voice control and yeah alexa all all the stuff is kind of happening at the same time yeah all of that on the demand side wow we're installing a ton of solar and wind which actually in a way is like pretty unrelated we're installing solar and wind at the wholesale level which are variable resources it's like in the past if we had no visibility into demand and we had pretty tight controls over supply you know, there'd be interesting stuff like they talked about tea time in the UK, like if there's a big soccer, <laughs> sorry, football match at halftime, like the grid would spike and they had to like predict 
based on like the schedule of games. <laughs> when all electric gonna, kettles. All the, the electric kettles. Whereas now like it's flipped where, you know, clouds pass overhead and it's like, oh, we just lost like five gigawatts of supply. But on the other side, companies like literally to the plug in your home, they can toggle on and off. So they could theoretically kill your electric tea kettle. So I think the equation's like totally flipped where flexible demand is really important, you know, to integrate more solar and, and, and wind. But I'd say like we just can't physically operate the grid without it in, in the future. I think there's like this question of why can't you can continue DR programs, right, to do this? Should demand response sort of be the way, right? And I think to Duncan's point, there's this sort of idea that this will need to happen pretty frequently. DR to date, you have to inform people in advance that something's going to happen. People probably don't want a text message that their electric tea kettle is being turned off every time it gets turned off and on. Uh, <laughs> and I think similarly, we mentioned briefly earlier, but the value for a Resi customer is just a lot harder than for a commercial customer from like total savings, right? The average bill is $117 per month. You even cut someone 10%, you know, they're saving like 11 bucks, which isn't going to promote a lot of behavior change in the majority of customers, right? Yeah, it's not worth increasing your six minutes of thinking about energy to like an hour, right? <laughs> right, it's for like 20 bucks. 20 yeah, bucks. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's so that that's actually such a great point because that's that's the real challenge. You know, Duncan, when we work in the commercial space, we can be like, if we install our software platform, we're going to save you $100,000 a year, which is, which is like another 10% of your spend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> and if you go further and you do solar and batteries and a backup generator, it's going to be like 300k a year, you can cut 30 to 50% of commercial and industrial bills with these assets. And here's the important part by talking with one or two people. Right. right. Like, exactly. whereas yep. Yep. you speak to, let's just say, I don't know, a husband and a wife, you can save like maybe 50 bucks a year. Uh, like the value creation per like customer champion you need is like way out of whack. Right, exactly. And I've always said, you know, it's really interesting. This kind of ties into everything. If you look at balance of systems, solar racking, soft costs, financing charges, the panels themselves in residential solar, all of those per watt costs have like plummeted over the last decade. But the one metric that hasn't moved is cost of customer acquisition. It's gone up at times even. Yeah, it's crazy. Because like, even if it saves you money and it's clean and it's cool and all these great things DERs do, when they buy a home, they're not like, where's, why isn't there solar on the roof or whatever? Maybe some do, but. Yeah. Not <laughs> so the there's almost like this, yet. right. It's like a very cultural thing at the end of the day to me. Like, I, I think if we really want to talk about the energy transition, like you need a massive cultural shift. And I don't mean that like the quote that was like, turn down your thermostat and put on a sweater during the oil <laughs> crisis, like ruined energy efficiency for like an entire generation of Americans because they associate it with like, like hardship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas it, it should just be like, cool. It should be like sexy, you know, and like there's one thing Tesla's doing that's, that's successful, I think, where people want Teslas. They like want the solar roof. And that's what I mean by a cultural change. Like it needs to be sold to people, not like, look at how much money you're saving your $14 a month, but like a product that they want, you know, and that's why Nest was successful too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's like the key, right? Is that efficiency, the definition of efficiency isn't like doing less, right? It's doing the same with less. Right. That Nest was like, oh, look, we're a really fancy, beautiful looking thermostat instead of these ugly thermostats you've had on your walls for years. And also like, we're going to optimize your energy and you're not really going to think about it and you're overall going to be more comfortable. But when you're away, we'll like make sure we know that. And now you've saved some money, but like mostly your wall looks nicer. And you get like an app, but like it doesn't actually do anything. <laughs> like doesn't do anything. You can change your temperature on the app. <laughs> <laughs> Those are like the three or four things about Resi that make it hard, right? One, just like the dollar values are small. Two, nobody cares about it, right? So like actually acquiring customers is super difficult. Three, whatever the solution is, it has to be insanely easy for the customer, right? Like it, it, they, it cannot be complicated or require thought. And then four, usually to actually get something sold, there has to be a reason to want it beyond energy right? Either 
it looks cool. It's fun to use. It's a sweet car, you know, whatever it might be. Like it has to be something beyond like the energy implications of it. And those four things, one, are extremely different than commercial and industrial. And two, are just like a really hard box to get yourself into. Right. And I think that that would be the case for, you know, maybe energy as a service or other things, which is like, we have to do something like kind of big and radical to actually square that circle. Exactly. And I think a good place to sort of center the conversation is actually to go to almost the polar opposite, which is like the gritty model, say, <laughs> where <laughs> oh, gritty. the other option is like, which people I know plenty of people in the space who, who think this way. It's like, well, if you expose resi customers directly to wholesale prices, so prices are going up and down all day, when their bills go up, they'll be like, oh crap, I need a battery or a DER, which actually interestingly, like as it seems just kind of like a novel concept, but this wasn't possible, you know, a few years ago. And right. it's like, just in ERCOT right now in Texas, because you have a smart meter, because you settle to that meter, now reps can just expose customers directly to wholesale market prices. Yeah. And I think there, that's where it becomes this question. I think, I think part of the, maybe the sort of fifth reason that Resi is difficult is consumer protection is just looked at very differently in Resi than it is for right. CNI. And so when you expose someone directly to the market, and then they have, you know, a $9,000 megawatt hour one, the, the rep gets on the internet and starts taking shots of tequila to emphasize <laughs> the pain of the customer for paying that. And it becomes this question, right, of is total price exposure something that resi customers should have or should be able to have? Well, I think the best way to answer that is they just don't want it, like, <laughs> as we saw last <laughs> summer. So... So you didn't hear it from me, but I guess we're on a podcast, so that's problematic. But I heard that when prices hit $9,000 a megawatt hour in Texas last August, that Gritty lost like 50% of their customers. People just saw bills way higher than they, I don't know how many times, four or five, 10, however many times more than their prior month's bill. And so the interesting thing about Resi is that people in an academic way are like, Oh, but you know, it was high that month, but it balances out. They pay less over the year. It's like, but yeah, there's this thing called liquidity and like maybe they didn't meet their car payment that month and now they're in default or something. You know what I mean? Like people live paycheck to paycheck. Like that's not cool that they just like couldn't, you know, and I guess then you could finance that and stuff, but then it's like, oh, you're just going back to a fixed rate, you know? Well, I, th I think that there's a really interesting question there, right? Which is one way to deal with this would be by default to put everybody on an indexed rate to have retail choice that allows them to get off that indexed rate which by the way would create the biggest market for reps that do flexibility you're welcome james yeah thanks. Um, and then two if you don't want to get a rep we just have really flexible payment plans right and over the course of the year or two years or whatever you are going to pay less because you're getting just like the underlying energy system costs and like you know, if one of your bills is crazy, like you get three months to pay it. Yeah. But don't you realize that you just described a fixed contract because like you yeah, need a term exactly. on that. You need a term yeah. on that contract because if, if you're, you're putting them on a payment plan, then they need a certain number of months to like recover that. E even without index rates. Like I, I remember at an apartment I had with two roommates in Bushwick, we had resistance electric heat, uh, like P tax, right? And they were installed poorly too. So it was like really leaky. The the polar vor vortex year, we got a $900 electric bill for like our Ooh. tiny, oh tiny, my God. tiny, tiny apartment. I and mean, we were on the default rate, which isn't indexed, of course, but, and, and isn't, you know, settled the meter or any of that stuff. But we were just like on the default, you know, kind of like non-locked in rate. And we just paid it over six months and Conrad was cool <laughs> and it was fine. That works too. <laughs> But it was terrible at the same time. Yeah. That's horrifying. Yeah. That's also the utility, you know, like there's things you can do as a rep where if we just pay, it's called POR, like we just pay the utility 1%, they take care of the credit risk. So like they're a utility, you know, they're these huge companies and, you know, your average rep maybe wouldn't have the balance sheet to, to do that.
right? If everyone got a $900 bill, the rep would be like, oh. And, and there's yeah. like a creditworthiness there too, right? Like the utility can actually like turn off the spigot, right? Right. If I don't pay the rep and then like I disappear, the rep's screwed, right? But, right, but in the Texas, utility, like people actually right pay their utility because they control the meter. Right. So I think at least, you know, there's there's a lot of ways we could go at this, but it sounds like customers got a bit allergic to the like expose me to wholesale market. They're not thinking about this stuff. They think about energy six minutes a year and they're just like, well, I didn't like that. So I'm just going to switch back to my old thing. <laughs> you know, like even if I'm paying an extra 15, 20 bucks a month, because that was painful and I don't want to do that again. Total price exposure kind of goes against all of the sort of tenants that we had of things that Resi customers in general want. Not to say that there aren't, you know, some people who would love to tinker around with that. And if they do, that's fine. Like, let them do it. Yeah, as long, as long as it's optional, right? Like as long as we don't either make it default and not have retail choice or like just like force it on people. In ComEd, they have like an RTP program, they call it. It's like hourly rates. And it's obviously opt-in, right? It's not the mm -hmm. default. And it has very low like engagement relative to the total rate class. It's like, you know, whatever, 0.5% or something, but like super high customer satisfaction among those who use it. Cause right. they're like, cause they're like EV owners and stuff, right? right. They're, they're like, they're kind of like into it. So I, I think that's cool, you know, and why not sort of like chip away at those who are interested. Uh, but I agree, like most people don't want to think about this. Once I was tweeting with Matt Golden, of recurve and i think he said like grandma doesn't want to arbitrage her toaster like, <laughs> he's exactly right like no one really wants to yeah. About this. yeah but i do want someone to arbitrage my dishwasher like schedulable load. i'll do it yeah i'm like it's so it's such an obvious load for me that can just be done like pretty much whenever over like a 24-hour period you finish dinner you're like by dinner tomorrow i need my dishes to be clean like optimize it yeah right so that um, washing machines, dryers to some extent, although you don't want your wet clothes like sitting around for a while. Pool pumps, EVs, like there's there's actually a lot of schedulable loads in, in either the current home or the home of the future. You look at someone's devices in their home and you're a rep and you're like, if you want to have full control over your power and when you put on your dishwasher and you don't want to be bothered, you can pay me 200 bucks a month and I'll just tell you when you should do things. You'll get a nice app for it. If you just want the cheapest power possible, you're going to let me do anything with your thermostat or anything with your dishwasher between like 8 p.m. and 6 a.m. or 70 degrees and 78 degrees. And then you're just going to hand it over to me, the, the rep, and you're going to pay 100 bucks a month flat, right? People could still pick a tiered plan of, you know, or something in between those two poles and get what they want, right? And not really have to think about it too much and then all that optimization is like our incentives are aligned that's what's interesting about it is it aligns the incentives the other thing i love about flat billing is like when your gas furnace breaks and it's time for a new furnace and you're considering an electric heat pump it's a 50 dollar adder and you just yep. have to make sure you sign up for the next four years or whatever I, yep. I mean i'm making that up that's probably way too little but like you can layer additional flat mm -hmm. fees to finance equipment, yep. um, which I think is like super interesting because then you know it's going to be equipment that's able to be controlled because they're the ones who finance it. I think that's actually like the, the key. And then you start having these sort of customer relationships and as new things happen, you become, you can be like a trusted advisor that also gets more efficient equipment in continually. Yeah. Like if my energy provider installed my heating and cooling system and I had a flat bill, like, I wouldn't really care about anything. We just have the deal that, like, you're going to keep my house between 65 and 75 degrees. Like, I don't know. There's some, like, performance score you mm -hmm. could even have. And just, like, that's it. Like, I don't care about the maintenance, about, like, what brand it is or what cost of electrons are going into it. Just, like, give me the actual service I want. And the rest, you can do whatever you want. I was actually having a conversation about this internally is that I think where we get to eventually is basically being able to use the option value of a behind the meter asset to finance. Like Duncan, you know that when you look at arbitrage for a customer, that's not a bankable value stream. But if I, as a retail electricity provider, I'm like, if you put this battery in, 
there's an option value associated in over three years, because that's probably how far out I want to look for a commodity. I can basically pay you for that call option. Like I'm keeping some of the value, you're getting some of the value. You can use the commodity side of the bill to actually finance. Like I think that's actually possible, especially when you're when you're doing it at scale. So I think some of the questions though of like on bill financing are similar to a lot of like the solar financing questions, which is if customers move, does that heat pump and you're like a in a rep model, the next customer isn't required to sort of like sign up with that same rep, but there might be this sort of lingering heat pump costs. You could probably carry that over through through the sale. The risk would be if the house goes vacant. Yeah, it would just be either you buy out the deal, you get the new owner to to be assigned to it, or maybe they're, I guess maybe you could just like keep paying it even though you're not there <laughs> if you didn't want to buy it out. What if it could follow you? What if it's just like at your next place, you're going to have a heat pump because you've been paying for a while. Isn't Tesla doing like rooftop solar, like you lease it, they can just like rip it out? They have solar rental now, which is interesting. They'll put solar on your house for a, you know, like PPA rate, but the rate has no term. So you're not like signed up for the next 15 years. Like at any point you can say like, take the solar off my house. I don't want it anymore. It's like whatever, $1,500 to get rid of it. So it's basically like totally at risk for Tesla. I, I don't really understand it, how it works. And no one else offers it. So on that note, I'm going to put out a crazy idea. Duncan, usually this is your job, but going back to how the equation has kind of flipped from intermittent supply and now flexible demand where it used to be the opposite. I see at the same time, you know, this idea that you go up to the your gas station and you like buy gas from Shell, right? But Shell started out as a oil and gas producer, right? Like getting it out of the ground and they eventually went vertical. This is what Standard Oil invented. Rockefeller built like the first vertically integrated business because if you're pulling oil out of the ground, you're a victim of prices going up and down. So then you want to own the pipelines that carry it. And then you want to eventually get to the retail customer, right? So what I love thinking about is like the modern grid, you have all these points of production and consumption that are now very controllable and granular, like an EV when they go up to a, a Tesla charger, right? Like they're going up, that's like shell right now. It's like electricity is the commodity that matters now. So if you're a retail electricity provider and you're controlling that point of demand and like shaping that load, to basically hedge for that customer and like protect the price of the of power where does the vertical integration extend to like do you start owning the battery itself do you start owning the tesla charger do you start owning the wires between two homes like like it it, it do you become a utility <laughs> yes no, i'm serious like i'm not even kidding like when you start talking about energy as a service if you say you're going to pay me flat monthly and I get to do whatever I want with your load. How far does that go? Like, where, where, where do you take that to now that those incentives are what they are? You're probably going to eventually want to own the battery, as we were just talking about, like financing it. You're probably going to go in the other direction up to supply, like own some, some solar farms or something to, you know, deliver power to that building or something. You're probably going to give your customers like a bike or something. Oh, I like it. You know, don't charge your EV, like take your bike somewhere else. And by the way, go do stuff outside of the house where you're not using energy. It could get into some freaky like social engineering stuff too, which I'm not down with. Where you're like trying to guide customer behavior. I know this is getting out there, but where I wanted to get to is, I love this project, uh, Urbit. Colleen, we got to touch on blockchain right now. You know, I'm down. Where like basically digitally interconnected IoT devices, which would be your like smart thermostat or your dishwasher and you're, you're protecting that customer data. Basically, if I now as the retail electricity provider have your dishwasher, control over your dishwasher, your your TV, all the loads in your house, like how much personal data is associated with that? And like it gets, I know your driving patterns. Yeah. I'm probably you plugged into your Alexa. Like it's pretty creepy stuff that we're actually starting to talk about. So I'd, I'd be remiss to not bring that up, with, you know, when we're talking about this like utopian energy as a service, it could get kind of scary. It gets totally scary. I mean, so just to, you know, do a quick blockchain plug, like what if different devices had like, you know, the permissions that you can put in it and you as a 
aggregator or as a rep can like see what is available to you, but you can't tie that to your individual customers. Right. And like, that's mm -hmm. something that blockchain like is a technology that can group things and add those privacy permissions. Wow. That's the most compelling case for blockchain I've ever heard. That's <laughs> awesome. No, no, really. Cause like, I would be so weird about having all these devices in my house that are tracking me. And if blockchain, yeah, made my participation in that market more anonymous, mm -hmm. that would be really cool. Colleen, you just put that really well. Like, I guess as an electricity provider, I didn't mean to sound surprised there. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was a really good idea. Yeah, no, no, but, but I hadn't thought of kind of decoupling it from location because I've always been like, well, the solar panel is in a certain location you'd probably want to know the local weather you would need to, to know like the forecast network. but maybe just like the lbmp would be enough exactly right you probably don't need to know like lat long but you probably do need to know the network but that's right. that's enough i think right. right i mean if if i'm a resi customer i don't care so much that people have like a general sense of how people in my neighborhood use energy as long as they aren't like Colleen's not home right now. No, I just don't want like Mark Zuckerberg like pairing my dishwasher <laughs> info with like my search history and like that's probably where it's going, man. Yeah, I don't, you know, and then he's like, already doing that. And then like suddenly I'm like, you know, interested in like, you know, some new political candidate I've never heard of. And like, like that's, <laughs> I don't want any of that, you know. Um, hey, check out Urbit, man. That's really, I seriously mean it though, that I think that is like a really compelling value proposition. And if blockchain can enable that, that's pretty cool. Because people are worried about this anyway, like forget energy. Everyone's mm -hmm. like worried about all these new devices in their homes and like what it means. Like we socially haven't really digested that yet. Yeah, no, we're like convenience all the way. And then like my Alexa speaks to me at random. Oh, really? oh, see, I don't let any and of that stuff in my house. It's absolutely horrifying because I'll go and I'll try to look up what command it thought it heard and it didn't hear anything. And it just like spoke unprompted. Oh my God. <laughs> That's terrifying. I don't have any of that stuff in my house either. So it, no, but it, it, it comes back full circle to that, right? Because if we're saying customers don't really care about 20 bucks a month, I think they care about their power staying on. They care about resiliency. So especially if you're in California, everyone's going to want a battery in their home. They care about sustainability. They care about maybe philosophically, like having more control over the utility. Cost is probably the least, the, the, like the lowest on the <laughs> on the poll there. And if you're just coming to them like, oh, you're paying seven cents a kilowatt hour, now you're paying six. Like they don't care. We've we've established that. But calling to your point, if they are like Mark Zuckerberg has my dishwasher data, <laughs> I think I think it's gonna kill the case for everything we're talking about right now, right? It's like, oh, no, but don't worry. It's like more efficient. You're like helping more solar get integrated. They're like, I, I don't care. Like, I don't want you to have my data. I think it's like both a barrier from the personal residential customer side and also from the regulatory side. Because I think if you can't solve data privacy, it's going to be real hard to convince regulators that like every customer should be just data sharing with all the reps. And so... What do we do now? Because we just, we did a Resi Durs podcast. We just wanted to like argue about energy as a service. And what we did instead is convince Duncan that blockchain is dope. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think maybe there's a place to start bringing it home, but this is actually why I came around on flat billing. Cause I was always like, if your teenage son or daughter starts mining Bitcoin, your consumption goes out and then the electricity provider needs an out and basically the whole thing that we've founded this concept on is like ease to the customer. They really like it. It's like simple. But if the retailer has to go back to them and be like, oh, you actually owe me 170 bucks this month or, oh, you you just up to the premium plan because you use too much. The customers be like, wait, what? Because basically in the past, the retailer has taken on commodity risk, like supply, demand, price fluctuations and stuff. But in this model, they're taking on consumption risk too. So you can kind of like hedge against weather, like, I don't know, buy weather drives, like do all sorts of stuff in that sense, or you have control of the thermostat or the, the battery. So there's things you can do, but geoengineering, geoengineering. <laughs> but if the customer starts just using more, it kind of ruins the construct. Right. And so that was always my pushback. Kieran was like, oh, but you pay for a data plan on your cell phone, like one gigabyte or two gigabytes. <sighs> I don't want to pay for a data thing? plan though. I don't want well, to do that. Well, now it's unlimited. 
Right. But it's not unlimited. And then like, oh, and then you don't get any, I guess they do like throttle you. So maybe you could just do they still turn someone's electricity off. Some of them do like, they make it a little bit slower over like some insane number of gigabytes. Yeah. Many data plans will, will slow you down after a while. Like you still get access, but just not, you know, priority access. I think there's probably like some sort of contractual thing around like non-routine adjustments. I don't know exactly how you would do it because someone could just lie, right? Like an additional person moves in or you start Bitcoin mining, but there's probably some sort of threshold where you kind of give like a warning where you're like, Hey, like your usage went up by 30% unexpectedly. Like anything you want to tell us, like if this continues for the next three months, then we're going to have to move you to a different plan. And that would be written into the contract. There's some sort of like ability to do something, or maybe it's just an annual thing. Right. And it's kind of like, use a lot more this year than next year it's gonna be more expensive or if you can see their plug loads and you're like what 15 kw device did you just (laughs) install upstairs what's going on in the attic no 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) just thinking of like arrested development when the grandfather like the patriarch like moves in is living in the attic and like someone calling and being like we've noticed some increased usage exactly That was always my pushback, but it sounds like you guys, you know, you think there's a way, a way around it. It's like, can the rep take on consumption risk in a way? I think it's more simple for a consumer to understand large changes in usage will affect my bill than to understand like it was colder this year. And so I paid more. And And the flip side of it is you can finance to lower the usage. Yeah. You get the upside as the rep or whomever is providing this contract as well. So did we solve the Did grid? we solve it? Who's voting for <laughs> who's voting for energy as a service? Nay. Oh. <laughs> nay? Yeah, nay. What do you think we should do? I'm excited about it and I think it's ultimately what customers want. I just think it's like a black hole of like arguing at the PUC for the next 20 years. Like, <laughs> I don't think we're ready for it. I, I just like don't think we're there yet. And it would just suck up so much attention. I think we'd probably be better served by less comprehensive measures. That might be a bit disappointing, but like we'd be able to wrap our heads around right. from a management, regulatory, et cetera, perspective. So you think you'd be better off like having aggregation of DERs that customers are incented for in a different way that's separate from their bill? Or it could be a part of their, I mean, flat billing is a very specific thing, right? It could, we could do the thing James is doing right now, right? Where like reps you just, just lower offer the price. Rates. Yeah, right. Reps offer you a good rate if you're willing to let them like mess around a little bit, right? Like flat billing is just so radically different. James, as our rep expert, correct me if I'm wrong, in markets with retail choice and that settled at the meter, so ERCOT. ERCOT like, only. Like somebody could offer flat billing right now. Yeah. Totally. Other, other than distribution rates, you know, those are subject to change possibly or be volumetric or demand driven or whatever. But like a rep could totally say like 30 bucks a month. That's it. Yep. It's probably going to be more than that, but whatever it is. I, I think in the next year or two, you'll see it. So let's see what the market wants. I won't claim to know the details of what their flat plan looks like, but I know like Inspire, which is a yeah, shell backed yeah. company has like some form of flat billing and at some point whether they're doing it now or not would like to be able to offer flat billing with like some dr controls it's out there wasn't tendril talking about this but they're not a rep yeah they were talking about like helping utilities do this right yeah so that's a whole another <laughs> duncan and your project developer like the reason you don't do community microgrids because like that's how you die as you said it like i feel like it's the same thing trying to like sell flat billing (laughs) to utilities yeah (laughs) like it's it's not for the faint of heart yeah unless you're getting paid by the hour like it's not yeah exactly (laughs) but it is out there like i think the most advanced form is like with the smart thermostat i again like i'm like i don't think it's interesting until you're really grabbing an ev and a battery and the thermostat in Texas, you could do it, but there's like a lot of smart thermostats and you settle to the meter. And I think people have done it, but I, I think you need more optionality, like you need a battery. Are there like studies on this that like, I feel like we've explored the implication of flat billing with regard to like 
yeah, mining Bitcoin or like, you know, installing a pool or whatever. Or like I how just, many miles you drive as a car, I just thought. Yeah, right. Stuff like crazy. that. But like, have we thought about how it slowly creeps into the psychology of the consumer and like they in mass start feeling more comfortable making the AC set to 66 rather than 70? Yeah. Um, like all these things, like like these slow generational habit, habitual changes that could take place. Like I, I've talked about this before, you know, with you guys. Um, I don't have flat billing, but I have zero marginal cost electricity because kind of doesn't read my meter ever. But it, I have seen it creep into my behavior. Like I run the AC all the freaking time now, even when I don't need to, because like turning it off is effort. But you don't have someone like year over year saying, how is this compared to what you did last year? And are your prices going up or not? That's true. Flat billing, I guess, still has some kind of like mechanism. There's some feedback loop, right? And I think that's, that's the important part. It's not like, here's your flat bill for the next 10 years. It's not in perpetuity. <laughs> yeah. Like if you're bad, you still will get punished. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I think that's like how we think about energy in the home. It's just kind of like, I'm supposed to be good. If you stop turning all the lights off because like you got lazy, like someone's going to notice that. Well, and so this is the other thing I want to know about flat billing, right? Which is, you know, certainly people don't like getting punished by a higher bill and not understanding why. But the other thing people don't like is not being rewarded for being good. Mm -hmm. And like one question about flat billing is like, so at the end of my 12 month term, like, is my rep really going to say like, you've earned a lower bill this year? because you were good, right? Or am I gonna actually have to go out and like shop at a bunch and like get people to reward me? Cause that sounds like work. The other thing I've thought of, which would be a cool way to like break the rep model as like the boogeyman and stuff, like cause people hate reps, is lock them in at like seven cents a kilowatt hour, like a standard rate, and then just pay, like cut them checks, like DR whenever, when prices go to $9,000 a megawatt hour, which has happened at like the commercial level, but you could like gamify it in a consumer app and be like, if you remember to turn all five of your lights off today, like you make put a buck in your cash account or something, you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. you could totally, there, there's another avenue where instead of predicting all the demand and consumption upfront and pricing it into a flat monthly, you do something more standard, but then just pay out as like a rewards program in a way. As long as you give me cash and not like goofy gift cards. <laughs> That's the worst. I have so many unused cool points right now from Con Ed. No, I, I, I love the smart AC program from Con Ed, I, but I have not used my cool points. We'll just give you crypto tokens, man. Yeah, I was like, there, there's a lot of there are a lot of blockchain companies trying to be like, we'll reward people for energy efficiency, but they were all, you know, giving them in crypto that they invented out of thin air. And I had no idea how they were going to actually verify that people did anything energy efficient. Yeah. Um, other than them just being like, yeah, I turned off my five lights today. Sure. That's the key. You need, you need the device integration. You need the device integration. No one's doing it as a rep, which is like, here's David energy's plug. But I mean, I, I've seen a couple do it like, you know, Michael out there evolve. They they started doing it on the Resi front, which I think is sweet. How, how does it even work? Like, do you actually have to go and like install a gizmo? No, you just get like an API. Like, even on a commercial job, like we'll just get an API for the Solar Edge inverter. Yeah, yeah. yeah but if yeah. it's the building management system, we'll go on site and we'll integrate. But at the Resi level, it's like all those consumer devices are built with APIs. Yeah, or are being built with APIs. Right. Like water heaters. Yeah, but so so water heaters, like I feel like a lot of companies are coming out with devices and I feel like it's one of those things where once that happens for long enough, then someone starts building it into the future water heater. So if I'm the if I'm the water heater company, right? And let's say my water heater costs five hundred bucks, I would sell it to customers for four hundred bucks if I retained the dispatch rights and it was my gizmo that was built into it and James had to had to like work with me now to use my water heater. Yeah, but what you would actually do is just come to me and say, I my business model is to sell more units. This is my margin per unit. If I can be cheaper than the less dope water heater brand, more customers will buy it. And the way I do that is if you do all the optimization, I'll essentially give yeah, you yeah. the option right and you lower the cost by 100. But that's what Nest did with DR programs. Like They got more Nests installed because they handed off the monetization to other companies 
what I was pointing out earlier with like optionality is that it hasn't happened in a holistic sense. Like they did it with like a dumb DR program. But if you want to stack up like frequency reg, DR, the commodity, demand charges, like everything, even, you know, if it's solar, like selling, selling it into the grid or whatever, there hasn't been like a more holistic, here's the total value stack of the asset. I'm with you on that. I, I guess what I'm bringing up is something we haven't considered, right? Which is my opinion is like, nobody's going to install a dongle on every energy using device in your house, right? Where this really picks up steam is when all this stuff is just built in. Yep. Washing machine, your yeah. fridge, your EV charger, blah, blah, blah. It's all just built in and there's APIs, right? But I think what that inherently means is that device OEM is going to want a cut, going to want to receive some value. In no, because they're competing. I'm not saying a cut of the ARB value. I'm just saying like, they're going to want something out of this, right? Like, why would they include this otherwise? Because we, we all know customers don't really give a shit if like their washing machine is What like, they get is more installs because they're cheaper than the next person. And they're cheaper than the next person because they do a deal with you or somebody else, right? right? So like, that's a cut. That I'm just saying like, what is the value to the OEMs? They sell more units. Yeah, especially if they're aggregators. And how does that tie into like flat bill and so like I just think it's an important part of the value chain. We haven't thought about it all here. If I'm an aggregator doing on bill financing to a customer, I'm going to be purchasing a lot of water heaters. Mm -hmm. And so that gives me purchasing power. So I think there is right. this idea that you can actually create competition there because you have all this purchasing power. And at the end of the day, what does it really cost for someone to add, you know, now, not like 10 years ago, someone to add an API like enabled device to a okay, water so, heater. So if the device comes through the biller or aggregator or whomever, right? yeah, then the OEM has to play ball with the aggregator. I guess what I was saying is like, if we assume there are devices out there, which could be controlled, that the customer bought, the OEM is then sort of the gatekeeper. This is like how modern TVs like cut ad deals with like, yeah roku or whatever right or rather roku does because it's built into the tv so if i originate a customer i'm gonna go to all the oems and say i need a hundred thousand batteries who's gonna give me the cheapest price and then i keep the value yeah. if tesla has installed all these batteries i will pay them for a right to that call option yeah and here's the arcadia plug like why i always talk about how amazing that business is is because they've built like the most powerful customer acquisition platform in like modern energy history. And like, it's, you know, they're just growing and in, in, in doing that. So like they own the gatekeep to the customer because they own the bill. Yeah. So what matters here is not like the API or what's enabled. It's like who owns the customer relationship. That's like one piece of the value that's really important mm -hmm. because then you can go to Tesla with those six minutes a year that you have with the customer and like choose to sell them Tesla instead of Sunrun or sell them a Nest instead of an Ekabee. What I found is that the OEMs have moved out of doing DR themselves and have moved out of like direct selling yeah. and they use channel partnerships because they're like just manufacturers. Yeah. Again, I was thinking more so of like refrigerators and washing machines like that. The kind of like level of not the big hitters, like not not the EV, right? Which is always going to be like an energy centric thing, not the heat pump, but like all the other stuff, right? Like if we're going to optimize all that stuff, like whatever the consumer happens to buy as their washing machine has to be compatible. Right. right. So I have one final question. Could you ever buy a device that already has the energy costs included? That's an awesome question. If it's a purely schedulable load, maybe. I think there's a few factors that matter. One is like the ROI. If I could recover within three years, the cost of a car that only drives on electricity, I as a rep would probably try and find a way to offer that. But if it takes like 10 years to recover, then like my curves as a rep Right. And out, they don't go out that far. Like that's, you know, now you're talking Enron, like just messing with curves and like, <laughs> it's, and you know, I love Enron, but so it, it depends on like the time, the time horizon, of the deal, unless like you own a solar farm and to Duncan's point, like you can schedule that load to like match it 
And you know, for like the next 10 years, they're only going to be charging off that solar farm. So there, there's like a bunch of factors that would go into it, I guess. It's not out of the question. If we're in like a very high penetration wind and solar future, and we know there's an hour every day where the OMP is zero, maybe there's more, but there's at least an hour. And we know your dishwasher only takes an hour to run. And it has the button that says free energy on it. And if you hit that button, it's just going <laughs> to run at some point, but only when it's zero. Like, there you go. Right. I love it. Colleen, this this is like when I was getting all crazy talking about Shell and like, d- does the retail energy provider end up like owning infrastructure and cars and stuff? That's what I just invented. It's where yeah, we're going no, there. Like, it's it's possible, you know, it's because it matters. And Duncan, to your point, like pressing free energy, there's option value embedded in these flexible devices and the retailer is the one who can harvest that, right? So yeah. theoretically, if it were flexible or it was an electric only device, yes, you could sell a device with electricity costs included. And we should even look back, like didn't General Electric used to be like Edison General Electric, right? Like then they started selling appliances because they used electricity as like a progression of their business model, right? So I wonder if they like financed a toaster at the beginning with like, if you sign up for General Electric's power for three years, we'll like give you a free toaster. Well, it is kind of interesting, like, right? The the original like utilities would charge you for how many light bulbs they gave you. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't right. meter you. There were no rates. It was just like, it, it was flat billing in a, in a per service way, like right. a la carte. And that, that's kind of like, I don't know. That's kind of cool. Maybe we could go back to that. What kills my analogy here is like Shell doesn't finance my car. Maybe because there's no, there's no like control over when I roll up to the pump. And it kind of doesn't matter, does it? Right? Because like there's so much oil storage. Yeah. And there's not on the grid. That's my point. Yeah. 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 I guess you could see it either way. Like, is the future of like auto leasing going to be like tied to reps um, or the reverse? People wonder about like if the EV OEMs will become like kind of the center of like the energy home um, right? because it's by far the biggest load in the house. Stuff like that is interesting. Yeah. So I think to suffice to say, like there's a lot of really cool ways that we could engage residers and, you know, Duncan might not be convinced that energy as a service is the way that we're going to get in the next five to 10 years, <laughs> but maybe we'll have uh, our Tesla and our Chevy and our Toyota bills coming our way. Yep. <laughs> if they're still around. <laughs> so Colleen, are you a yay on energy as a service flat billing? I'm a yay as an option. Like I think right. it'll be one Always. of many options. Yeah. Right. I don't think it'll be like, 100% conversion. Duncan, yeah, you're a nay? I'm a total yay. Yeah, I think I'm like kind of a unfortunate nay. Yeah. All right. Fuck it. I'm a, I'm a yay. I'm a hard yay. Let's <laughs> let's build it. Let's flat fill the shit out of this grid. <laughs> you know, if James and I agree on something, I'm like, something weird is happening. Colin and I just, Colleen, <laughs> despite you and I disagreeing the most, we always end up agreeing, so... All right, DR Task Force, that's the end of the episode. As always, if you have comments, come find us on Twitter at DR underscore task underscore force, or check us out on our website at drtaskforce.com. It's also where you can order that sweet, sweet swag. Hashtag microgrids are dope. All right, y'all. Have a good one. Holy shit, there's a giant cockroach in my office. Oh, no. You see that? Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, that's juicy. They move so slowly and deliberately. You're just going to look at it? It's going to watch it? You're going to let it like... kind of shocking. Home. It's like nature taking back shit, you know? <laughs>